When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, are honored to interview Professor Curtis Runstedler on his book, Alchemy and Exemplary Poetry in Middle English Literature. Dr. Curtis Runstedler is a postdoctoral researcher in English literature and cultures at the University of Stuttgart, and his current research examines literary depictions of robots and AI in contemporary literature, and his PhD is in English literature and was conferred at Durham University in 2018. Dr. Runstedler, enlighten your audience more about your research interests and how you came to study these topics. Yeah, well, thank you so much for having me. So it's always been, I've always been interested in the intersection between literature and science as far back as I can remember. My, uh, my dad studied biochemistry and my grandfather studied um he was a lab technician in a chemistry lab. Uh, so I've always kind of been interested in those intersections. So astronomy, um, alchemy, astrology to a lot of the medieval sciences as well. And I did my master's in, at Durham University in England on uh, werewolves in the medieval romance. So I guess that kind of got me thinking about, you know, uh, where does the science end? and Where does the magic begin? Because as we know, in the Middle Ages, uh, a lot of times magic and science overlap too. So it got me into kind of science and literature. I did my PhD on alchemy and, uh, and middle, middle English poetry. So medieval English poetry. And uh, I really enjoyed doing that too. I wanted to do more astronomy at the time too, but you know, there's only so much time, right? So um, yeah, I was kind of interested in what kind of connect them together, how we can do kind of science better, better. what kind of, not only, you know, what, what, uh, you know, chem- uh, alchemy is the, the prototype for chemistry or whatever the case may be, but also what we can, how we can look at these medieval poems and what they can tell us about science in the time or how we can uh, learn more about pseudoscience or the history of science from these poems. Um, I was also really interested too um, in um, kind of uh, uh, the relationship between medieval science and magic too. Where does one end and one be- begin? So that was also something that I was kind of looking at a lot. And um, 
yeah, I began kind of looking at medieval astronomy and I realized it was kind of too much to take on uh, before I looked at medieval alchemy too. And medieval alchemy, there's a lot of really interesting poems that we know about already, such as Geoffrey Chaucer's, his uh, uh, Canon's Yeoman's Tale in the Canterbury Tales. And this is about a, a kind of a story within a story too. So I started off with, with the kind of poems that we know about. Uh, his contemporary John Gower also writes about alchemy, but there's also a lot of stuff that people haven't really looked at too. So a lot of... Um, uh, 15th century poems uh, containing kind of al what I call alchemical recipes. And those are kind of short excerpts about alchemy too. There's some really interesting dialogues too. So uh, one between Merlin and the queen of, or Merlin and uh, Morianus, who is the kind of the father of alchemy. And also another one between uh, Albertus Magnus, the kind of famous German friar and um, the uh, queen of elves. Um, and obviously, uh, you know, we know that the real life Albertus Magnus, uh, he was a scientist, an early scientist, um, writing about uh, kind of uh, the earth. And uh, he, he did write about alchemy, but he was kind of against it. But the, the uh, uh, Queen of Elves depiction, um, um, this is kind of made to kind of bolster the, the authority of the text too. So there's a lot of really interesting things going on there too. Uh, it's kind of a whole wormhole of <laughs> discovery and interesting aspects. Would you agree that your book is about magic or is it more about science? Uh, I think, as I said too, I think there's a lot of overlap between the two in the text. So you could say technically it's about both. Um, I think my book in particular is more about uh, the science, I think, behind it too. It's a history of science too. So we know nowadays, obviously, that uh, uh, alchemy doesn't work, you know, the transmutation of base metals into gold. So something like uh, copper or tin transmuting into gold, that doesn't work too. I mean, with a lot of, uh, you know, uh, science technology, you can kind of technically transmute, you know, lead into gold. But um, yeah, I would say it's more about science too. It's about history of science. And it's also, um, it's also looking at liter literature primarily too. It's a literature text too. Uh, also medieval history too. So there's something kind of in it for everyone um, too. It's very interdisciplinary approach to the, to the topic too. Also some philosophy, um, also some, um, uh, kind of metaphysics to Arist Aristotelian metaphysics. So yeah, a lot of kind of medieval philosophy in it as well. Why did you decide to research the medieval study of alchemy and not some other field? Yeah, uh, so that was really interesting. So obviously it was a little bit different than my master's, you know, writing about medieval werewolves. But uh, yeah, I've always kind of been interested in the occult uh, kind of sciences too in the Middle Ages too. And what's interesting about alchemy is that people were always interested in it, yet it was never really considered a legitimate science by a lot of practitioners. A lot of the practitioners who did uh, legitimize it, they kind of tried to connect it to Christ uh, to, to kind of give it more authority um, too. So I was really kind of interested in that too, you know, um, because alchemy, obviously it, it doesn't work as I've said too, but it lays a lot of the groundwork for uh, modern chemistry too. Um, so... Yeah, I was I was kind of interested in that too, and I was thinking, you know, what what can these poems tell us about early science? Uh, what can, what can we do f with these poems too? You know, they're not just poems too, but they also connect to um, an exemplary tradition too. So, you know, how do these poets use these poems to make moral points about pra practice and scientific practice too? Um, so, not only you know for the benefit of the artist, but also how scientists can look at these poems and find meaning in that too. How artists can look in these poems and find meaning too. And just kind of examining that kind of intersection as well. 
And is it only poetry or do you also write about lengthy prose? More poetry I looked at too. It's a lot of the uh, uh, the excerpts that I had too. There was a lot of kind of uh, Latin prose too, uh, some some Middle English prose, but mostly it was it was poetry that I looked at too. Um, obviously, I didn't look at all the the manuscripts. <laughs> There's a lot of good stuff too, but I tried to show examples of how it connects to this uh, uh, exemplar tradition. And what the exemplar tradition is, these were kind of uh, secular stories in the, the late Middle Ages too, and they'd be used to prove a moral point. And what my book is doing is is connecting that exemplar tradition to um, medieval science, so alchemy, and also to the, the medieval poetry that's being produced too. And what we see going into the 14th, 15th centuries too is not only alchemy becoming more and more popular, and it'll get even more popular going into the Renaissance with Queen Elizabeth too. She had her own practitioner, but I don't get into that in this book too. Um, but uh, yeah, there, there's it's a very exciting time for these things. There's a lot of stuff being produced. And uh, yeah, I hope that answers your question. <laughs> Are you arguing against the work of other literary scholars or refuting any arguments? And what is your thesis? Um, so I, I, you know, I, I do challenge some <laughs> literary scholars uh, to some of them, you know, a lot of times some of the authors that I look at, such as John Gower, they kind of get, uh, um, they don't, they have less than favorable reputation. Thankfully, a lot of the Gow- John Gower scholarship that's coming out today, is kind of more favorable, but uh, there's an alchemical passage in, in his book too. So he's a contemporary of Chaucer. Uh, his stuff gets kind of... Uh, overlooked I think a lot of times too so it's nice to shine new light on this too so I wouldn't say I'm refuting any kind of scholars too um, but what I am doing is is kind of linking it to that um, exemplar tradition and I don't know I don't really think that's been done so much before my uh, one of my contemporaries uh, Owen uh, Bentick who just published a book Literatures of Alchemy uh, I think it's with the uh, Boylan Brewer uh, that just came out as well too it's a very good book too uh, him and I used to present at conferences a lot together and uh, he's kind of looking at more kind of the vernacular tradition as well, too. But uh, I think I, as far as I know, I'm the only one looking at, at it from an exemplar perspective. So linking exemplar and science and poetry, too. So that's my argument, too. So I'm saying that these uh, uh, medieval poems um, can be read as exemplar uh, for kind of different aspects. So, um, um, you know, how to practice science better, uh, how to kind of... Uh, be a better person, essentially, too. So raising a lot of different moral points about um, uh, what what they can mean and what they can be. I do refu- I do refute uh, Carl Jung, though. I forgot to mention that, too. And I think that leads us to the next question as well, right? Yes, I was going to mention Carl Jung's theories. Um, what was it about them that you were not in agreement with? Yeah, so obviously Carl Jung is a great... Uh, great mind, you know, uh, coming from Freud to the one of the great minds of the 19th century. And I love a lot of Carl Jung's uh, alchemical theories. I don't agree with it in practice, too, because uh, so my research uh, is really connected, too, with a lot of the, uh, in the early 20th century, they had uh, what was called Ambix Journal. And this was uh, uh, the Journal of the Society for the History of Chemistry and, and Alchemy. And um, it was you know, started by F. Sherwood Taylor, a lot of these old kind of old white guys. <laughs> and uh, they basically argued that, uh, you know, 
alchemy was a worthwhile, the history of alchemy was a worthwhile study. They really want to focus on this too, but they also recognize that alchemy has a practical dimension too. So it's not just symbolic too, you know, there was a practical dimension. I mean, we found traces at Cambridge University of old alchemical laboratories, so really interesting. And the reason why I refute uh, Young as much as I like Jung, <laughs> um, is that his uh, his alchemical stuff is all linked to kind of dream theory and it's linked to symbolism, which is fine. But I think there there always runs a risk to, um, you know, if you, you can't read everything as alchemical, right? You know, it has a practical dimension as to, you know, as being practiced in the workshops. A lot of these poets who are writing, some of them we don't know about, they're anonymous writers, but uh, ones like Chaucer and John Gower in the 14th century too, we do know that they weren't, they like, they probably weren't practicing alchemists, right? Um, so they were kind of, I guess you would say armchair alchemists um, too. And uh, I think that's the same with Carl Jung too. He was a psychologist by nature, which is fine. Um, but again, you know, I don't think you can read everything as alchemical. So that was, that was the point I was trying to make with, with that. You cite various authors from the medieval period and writers but who do you want the New Books Network to know about the most? Well, I think they're all important. I don't, uh, <laughs> I don't want one to kind of step over the other ones too. I think everyone knows about uh, Chaucer, um, but they might not know so much about his contemporary John Gower too, who wrote uh, the Confessio Mentis. But uh, John Ga- uh, John Gower is also special because he wrote. Uh, he was a trilingual poet, so he wrote. Um, the Miro de l'Homme. I'm sorry if I mispronounced that. It's a French text. And uh, he also wrote Vox Clementis, which was a Latin text, so he could speak Latin, French, and English. And I actually look at the French text as well, too. Um, I also look at uh, John Lydgate, too. So John Lydgate was writing in the 15th century. He was a monk. And um, he kind of gets looked down upon a little bit in history, too, because he was very prolific in his time. But uh, he was also... Um, he he he's also he wrote so much that a lot of times people think you know his writing is quite dry too. I look at one of his shorter poems, "The Churl and the Bird," because there's a uh, manuscript at the British Library, Harley Manuscript 2407. This is a really interesting manuscript and it's full of alchemical recipes and details too. And they actually have a alchemical version of his poem. Just they have his poem and they have like a couple additional stanzas that make it more alchemical. They talk about. Um, the anonymous poet talks about uh, Alexander the Great and um, the bird is supposed to represent this alchemical uh, Hermes bird, which is really interesting too. And then in the last chapter of the book, I look at uh, two alchemical dialogues. Uh, from One's from a Cambridge manuscript and another's from the Oxford manuscript. Uh, one is between Albertus Magnus and the Queen of Elves. And uh, the other one is uh, between Merlin and uh, uh, Morianus, who I said is the kind of father of alchemy too and it's not the merlin we kind of picture you know when you think of merlin you think of the long beard and the pointy hat uh but this is actually a child merlin too so it's kind of a father uh, teaching alchemy to his son too but it's very allegorical uh too so um ob- obviously unfortunately we don't have a lot of these uh, anonymous uh, poets names but um thanks to a lot of the renaissance works a lot of times you know the, in the renaissance period a lot of these authors were kind of uh, um again, looking down on <laughs> the Middle Ages too, but some, you know, you had some antiquarians, like uh, I think the great one was Elias Ashmole, who uh, uh, was based in Oxford too. And he wrote uh, Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum in 1652. And his 
compendium is really important too. It has all kinds of different alchemical texts because not only does it include early modern texts, but a lot of medieval texts too. So all the ones I mentioned basically are included in there too, except for the Albertus Magnus and the Queen of Elves one too, but he has Chaucer, Gower. And it's a really interesting point for thinking about how you know, people in the early modern period were thinking about the Middle Ages too. And that's that's another part of my research that I'm really interested in too, is how are these kind of Renaissance uh, writers and antiquarians thinking about the medieval past too? Because a lot of times they have erroneous information. Chaucer, for example, he thought uh, Gower was Chaucer's alchemical master. Um, so we know that's not true. Um, but it kind of it's a really interesting way of, of approaching it too and trying to get past obviously the, the Victorian lens of seeing the medieval past too. Um but yeah, I would say kind of Chaucer, Gower, John Lydgate, um, um, and Elias Ashmole. Um I'm I'm quite a feminist too, so unfortunately there's not very many uh, female alchemists. I wish there was more. Um there was an early there's an early account of uh, someone called Mary the Jewess in uh classical times. Um and she informed uh um Zosimos of Panopolis, too, who was a Greek alchemist, too. Uh, we don't really know much about Mary, but uh, she is known for kind of her contributions to the apparatuses of alchemy. Um, but yeah, I would say those are the big names. So Chaucer, Gower, John Lydgate, and uh, and probably Elias Ashmole. The term exempla or exemplary poetry, what does it mean? So the term exempla... Um, it, it means uh, an example, basically, too. So it's uh, kind of a, it's a short narrative, and it's usually secular in content, too. Really interesting history, too. So this actually comes from the, the Christian tradition, too. Uh, so um, a, a lot of contemporary literature would include the Gesta Romanorum, uh, that sort of thing, too. And what I'm arguing here in my, my research is that these alchemical poems are actually can be read as exempla or singular exemplum. Um, and um, yeah, it starts kind of in the 14th century too. We kind of see the um, this emergence more interest in the kind of vernacular alchemical poetry and going into the 15th century. And um, yeah, so so this kind of links together with the two. And as I said too, it links all the way back to the New Testament too, which Jesus is talking about, you know, using a lot of par- parables in his uh, speech too. And then, you know, Gregory the Great kind of appropriates it a bit more, too. And then as we go further into the Middle Ages, uh, we have um, kind of um, the growth of kind of more secular exempla, too. And they're usually used to make a moral purpose, too, you know, for enlightenment or making one's life better, too. And I suggest that these connect to these uh, these poems, too. And what I'd, I'd also be interested in looking at, too, is it see if it applies to other kind of sciences as well, you know, alchemy, astrology, too very ambitious but uh you know it was fun to start with uh um alchemy is alchemical writing structurally different from other sources of literature like the cadence or the syntax especially in poetry what was alchemical writing meant to do and is it creating some kind of emotional response yeah so that's a great question um obviously with a lot of later texts too, like the alchemical recipes. So what an alchemical recipe is kind of like what you think about today. So (laughs) medieval cooking is a little bit different. So in middle ages, they didn't really have like measurements for the recipes, which sounds crazy, but (laughs) that's how they did it. Um, But it would kind of be a recipe too. And it'd be a lot of times it'd be in the form of a narrative too. So you'd have kind of one person with all the knowledge to the queen of elves telling Albertus Magnus how to make the, uh, the tincture or the, um, the philosopher's stone or the elixir of life the elixir witai um 
Sorry, I forgot the question. What was the question again? Sorry. Is alchemical writing structurally different from other kinds of literature? Right. Um, in some ways, I think the shorter ones too, they, they kind of had a, a certain meter to and rhy rhyming scheme too. So a lot of times if you were a practitioner, if you were working in a, a, a workshop or something too, you could read these poems as a way of memorizing the ingredients or, or um, and they do use a lot of ciphers too. So <laughs> a lot of times, you know, it'd be kind of impenetrable, all these alchemical secrets. And this is what uh, John Gower is saying too, you know, the ancients were successful with alchemy, but nowadays people are kind of too stupid to, <laughs> to know the alchemical secrets too. Um, the, the different authors that I look at, they approach alchemy a little bit differently. So in the Confessio Mantis, the John Gower chapter, uh, this is more encyclopedic too, whereas uh, um, Chaucer's is more of a, a narrative within a narrative. So you, in Chaucer's Canon's Yeoman's Tale, it takes place a little bit later in the, Can the Canterbury Tales towards the end. And you have a, a canon and a yeoman, and they kind of come a little bit late to the party too. They're they're getting closer to uh, St. Thomas and uh, um, the... Uh, the, the canon's yeoman doesn't shut up so he's going on and on and then he tells uh, he tells everyone how bad the uh, the canon's been to him and how much his alchemical experiments have failed and then the the canon runs off and then the second part of the story you get the actual story so he tells his story and uh, he tells about this kind of uh, basically snake oil salesman um, canon who uh, goes around ripping people off and he rips off this chantry priest and it's a great short story it's one of my favorite uh, Canterbury tales to um but that one is that one also uses obviously the iambic pentameter too, the same as same as Shakespeare. Um, but then we have a lot of the the later poems that I look at later on too. They have kind of a different rhyming scheme too. But obviously the rhyming scheme is important too, and I think that's a good way, good kind of mnemonic signifier for helping people who are reading it to to understand the content. How can we chart the migration? of alchemical ideas from Europe or into Europe from other places? Yes, that's a great question. So obviously it didn't come directly. Um, really interesting history too. So um, a lot of it started off in Hellenic Egypt too. So during the Greek Greek times, uh, it was really developed there too. We had Zosimos of Panopolis, who I mentioned, uh, Mary the Jewess too. Um, and then a lot of it was lost um, to the to Europe um, after the Greeks and the uh, so obviously the uh, the Arabic world and the Persian world they're very different than than they are now too they were really interested in science and kind of a lot of activities too um, so that they were interested in kind of uh, ophthalmology and alchemy and astronomy a lot of uh, kind of pioneering things you know medieval robots <laughs> and they uh, they translated a lot of the uh, the texts from the Greek too, and at this time, it wasn't available to the, the Europeans. And then um, it was it came to the Western world through kind of a lot of centers, uh, such as Toledo um, and uh, Robert of uh, Chesterton, uh, Robert of Chester, sorry. Um, he he was successful in, in translating it uh, into Latin, too. And that kind of sparked a lot of the interest in, in the West, too. And people became really interested in it, too. And it was always challenged, too. So... Um, uh, the Pope, actually, Pope John the Twenty Second, he had a decretal against uh, alchemists too, because um, you know they were kind of there was there was always the risk that uh, you could you know ruin the currency too if it was successful too. But nobody was ever really successful with alchemy, uh, and then a lot of times the uh, practicing practicing alchemists would link it to uh, Christian allegory to 
try and legitimize it too. And then in the late Middle Ages too, but, you know, before Paracelsus's time, uh, you had a lot of uh, people trying to link it to medicine too. So alchemy having medicinal purposes, trying to heal the sick king, that sort of thing too. So it was always challenged, but it was always there and always being interested too. And then obviously as, as it, it became more known in Europe, it kind of picked up, picked up too. Um, so it was always kind of popular once it arrived. The philosopher's stone and Hermes are popular topics for people interested in the Emerald Tablet. Do you write about Hermes in the Emerald Tablet? Yeah, I do actually. Um, so that's a really interesting one too. And there's an interest. There's a lot of kind of uh, you know pseudo histories, tales of uh, of uh, Alexander the Great finding the Emerald Tablet and that sort of thing too. And you know we can probably disprove that, obviously. Um, but I do write about the Philosopher's Stone, too. It is kind of mentioned in a lot of these alchemical narratives, too, because that's the end goal, too. So alchemy has two main goals. Medieval alchemy, at least, too. You have a, you have a transmutation of base metal into gold, and then also the search for the uh, elixir witai. And the elixir witai is meant to uh, prolong the user's life, too. So it's not supposed to be eternal. The uh, The stone... The making of the philosopher's stone so the stone is a transmuting agent to to replicate uh gold and this is something that's been very popularized in uh obviously harry potter and the philosopher's stone i think the american title is american uh harry potter and the, the sorcerer's stone and we don't what the hell's a sorcerer's stone we don't know because i think the Macmillan wanted a, a better title for their for their uh, audience they didn't know what if people would know what the philosopher's stone is but then it kind of loses its meaning too right so um yeah, I think um, this comes up a lot in my research too. Uh, I mean, all the uh, characters in the uh, texts are searching for that philosopher's stone, whether for good or bad too. Uh, Hermes, Hermes comes up too. Hermes is kind of uh, Trismegistus too. He's kind of this uh, uh, legendary kind of uh, Greek figure too. Uh, th- Hermes uh, th- uh, threefold. Um, and we, I also talk about Hermes' bird too. So Hermes' bird is an all, all, allegorical figure too. Uh, she appears as a bird in the Churl and the Bird um, story, but um, she's also supposed to represent Mercury too, with capital M. So not the uh, not the substance, the uh, the material pr- philosophical principle. Um, so you have Mercury and sulfur, and in the Middle Ages that was believed to be the uh, theory to uh, combine to create the. Uh, the uh, philosopher's stone uh, but nobody was really successful with that either too so yeah it's kind of recurring throughout uh, a lot of my my things too so it's kind of a search for a philosopher's stone and what jk rowling was doing with it is really interesting too i talk about that a little bit in my introduction too you know um harry potter actually gets the philosopher's stone because he's you know (laughs) a good person he wants to use it for selfless ends whereas um, Voldemort and Quirrell want to get it, that Philosopher's Stone, but for kind of immoral ends too, so they don't really end up getting it too, and they have that scene in the film where he touches them and kind of <laughs> they disintegrate. <laughs> and what alchemical themes do you think are most important for researchers today who are looking at alchemy for literature or history? Uh, I think it's important to recognize uh, historically the kind of the stigmas maybe around it too. I mean, alchemy was, was could be quite dangerous too. Um, I mean, they didn't have the same lab safety equipment that a lot of chemists have, you know, today too. Uh, it could be quite dangerous. You know, if you're putting the wrong ingredients in, it could explode. Uh, you could die basically. 
And there was also kind of the spiritual dangers too. You know, if, if you practice alchemy, you might summon demons. Uh, maybe it's demonic agency too. Um, you know, what is what is God's will and what is kind of demonic um, too. Um, but I think nowadays, uh, uh, yeah, I think it's important to, to recognize um, how it links to kind of chemical study today as well too. So a lot of the apparatuses too, maybe a lot of the methodologies I think too. Um, but also, you know, how we think about science too. And, you know, I think a lot of times we look at things like science or chemistry too, from a scientific perspective, but we don't really consider the artistic perspective. There's not kind of a symbiosis between them two. And something I'd, I'd really like to do is kind of nurture kind of more of a symbiosis between them, um, just to kind of encourage kind of a dialogue even between two, because I think art has a lot to teach uh, science and I think scientists could teach a lot about uh, art and I think um, depicting kind of alchemical poems as narratives too is, is a really interesting way of expressing ideas about art and science too um, so I think there's there's something there for everyone in that regard and do Masonic orders or Templars make it into your book uh, not so much unfortunately I'd love to talk about that stuff um, but the history of that didn't really figure too much too um in the 14th century we get more kind of like courtly poets writing about alchemy too but obviously the readership increases too by the time we get to the 15th century you know we get people from across the uh, social classes and social orders reading about alchemy too several not just uh people of the court you had people you know worksmen craftsmen you know uh, painters reading about these alchemical recipes too not just monks kind of hold up in some library um I didn't encounter the Templar too much in my research or the, the Mason orders. Um, I think maybe the Mason orders come up a little bit later in the, uh, uh, the, the Renaissance period too. And you have a lot of stuff like the Rosicrucians too. Um, Elias Ashmole was a Rosicrucian too. This is the, uh, um, I think it's the Rosy cross. <laughs> I think that's the translation too. Uh, so I do mention that a little bit too, but um, for the most part, uh, a lot of the, that isn't mentioned so much, although it's really interesting too. I'd I'd love to hear more about the kind of medieval manifestations of it. Maybe might be something for a future article. Would you think of Francis Bacon or Thomas More to be alchemical writers? Uh, whew, that's tr that's a tricky one. I haven't really looked at their contributions. I don't think I think they were kind of like if we look at medieval alchemy, they were kind of really pretty pretty. Uh, critical of the middle ages too so i don't i wouldn't call them alchemists per se there was a uh, medieval fr fr franciscan friar named uh, roger bacon in the i think 13th century he was based in oxford too and he was kind of interested in in alchemy a little bit too he did write about the philosopher's stone uh, because he thought that it was valid but i think in terms of uh, francis and thomas more i don't i don't think uh, they were too alchemical with their their interest too i think a lot of people in in the court at that time were kind of casually practice, practicing alchemy, but they were kind of, you know, the very definition of Renaissance man too. They were dabbling in this and dabbling in that. So uh, I'm not too familiar with their practices, but I think Thomas More might've done a little bit of alchemy. Did you research power structures at all? And there are sections where you talk about and write and have researched on like kings and queens. Queens. Mm -hmm. How do yeah. kings and queens make it 
or influence your research? Yeah, so that's really important. So um, a lot of times kings would have control over, you know, um, the, uh, the availability and the accessibility of alchemy too. So um, historically in the 14th and 15th centuries, um, you had a lot of these uh, practitioners petitioning the kings for licenses because, you know, technically alchemy was outlawed. And uh, a, lot of, a lot of times, uh, I think with Henry the fifth or sixth, um, you know, he was kind of, they were trying to make uh, more medici- medicinal approaches to alchemy so they could appeal him to. I mean, to be honest, I think everyone wanted the money <laughs> at the end of the day. But um, yeah, they, they appealed to the, the king to, uh, to try and kind of make alchemy more legitimate, I think, as a practice too. And a lot of these uh, people actually were given kind of licenses to practice alchemy, but obviously nothing really came of it um, too. But again, as I mentioned earlier, it's kind of interesting in that period too, because you see more medicinal kind of uh, proposals to alchemy too. And that really kind of kicks off when we get to the uh, early modern period with uh, uh, Paracelsus, who was a Swiss alchemist too. And uh, the the Paracelsian movement. Um, But there wasn't really so many queens at the time. Uh, I wrote an article about this on Game of Thrones, actually for a book chapter. there wasn't so many medieval queens writing about it. It was kind of obviously very patriarchal at the time too. So it was mostly kings who uh, would have the kind of final say on commi- alchemical commissions. But in the Renaissance period, you have you know Queen Elizabeth, uh, you know patronizing alchemy too, and uh, it's quite popular in her court. A lot of her, uh, you know, people in the court um, were practicing alchemy. Um, um, John Dee in particular too is kind of a famous figure. Edward Kelly who uh, were practicing alchemy at that time too. But in the Middle Ages, it was mostly kind of the kings who uh, either kind of for alchemy or against it too. And alchemy is kind of coming, always coming back again. It's kind of like a boomerang too. So even if they outlaw it too, you know, (laughs) people are still practicing it, you know, typical. AI and automation or robotics, where can we find that inside of your book? Um, AI and automation don't appear so much in this book too, but this is kind of one of my... (laughs) I'm starting a new research project with the University of Stuttgart too, um, but I was really interested in the intersection between um, uh, early medieval robots and uh, automata and and alchemy too. There is kind of a link there too that I have kind of briefly kind of sketched out. Um, so obviously the, the medieval robots, when we say that word for phrase, it's not really what we think of today. Um, you know, the Isaac Asimov kind of metallical machine. But in the Middle Ages, too, you'd have kind of different things. You'd have like uh, um, um, processions on a cathedral, too, or kind of hot, uh, robots that uh, croak at, at a certain time. Uh, really interesting mechanical, you know, things driven by pistons and that sort of thing. Um, I think the link there between alchemy and, and AI and robots is probably the uh, homunculus and the homunculus is a lab-grown baby, basic human, be- basically, kind of like a the, the medieval Renaissance version of a test tube baby. And the term homunculus that was a, a Paracelsian uh, phrase. So I have a term kind of because they they do crop up in uh, 15th century manuscripts too. We have kind of these allegories where there is kind of this weird incest, and uh, you get uh, these kind of um, homunculi or or a homunculus. Um, which is interesting too. And I think these have aspects of kind of uh, robots and AI as well too, because they're artificially produced and it is a form of kind of artificial intelligence. And that's really interesting because uh, 
a lot of times, you know, when people talk about uh, uh, early AI too, they they kind of, you know, maybe they'll go back to the Renaissance too. But we do have evidence of it happening in the Middle Ages to the proto-homunculus, as I like to call it, too. Um, so really kind of interesting early example of that. Is alchemy only a natural process or can it be artificial? Um, that That's a great debate, actually, because there's a, in the Middle Ages, too, they're always debating whether it's nature, whether it's art, you know, is it art imitating nature or is it nature? And the uh, some of the poets... Um, um, Jean de Meux, who writes Romance of the Rose, Roman de Laos, and um, uh, Dante writes in the uh, Divine Comedy that, um, you know, it is, they're kind of inferior uh, imitations too. Um, I guess it would depend on who's writing about it too, because that was always the debate too. Is it genuine or is it just an imitation of, of nature too? And obviously everyone wanted the, the real thing too. And I think part of the appeal of alchemy too is it accelerates a process too. You know, when we think of technology today, why is it why is it uh, useful for us? You know, if we think of Tinder, for example, um, Tinder accelerates a process too. It, it gives us more matches in less time too. So much like alchemy too, you know, you have the gold produced in less time to uh so you can kind of a get get rich quick uh scheme so to so to speak <laughs> can you also give the audience an overview of the difference between secular and religious alchemy yes absolutely too so a lot of the the focus of my book too for the most part is uh secular in content so a lot of the stories that they uh, obviously everyone in the, the Middle Ages, you know, had uh, was influenced by Christianity in, in the medieval West. Um, but these stories kind of uh, more feature kind of secular content too. So it's not written by monks for monks in, in a monastery too. We have kind of writers uh, such as Chaucer too and Gower. They're reading to a courtly audience too. So they're reading to a court of the king. So Chaucer would. I think Chaucer and Gower would be writing to Richard II in the, the late 14th century. Um, so, yeah, um, kind of interesting in that regard, too. But then you get kind of religious, um, religious, more religious poems, too. So there's one poem that I look at. It's between Morianus and Merlin, and uh, they swear uh, on, on Christ, too. So it has kind of a religious aspect to it as well, too. And that's really interesting, too. And I think that's part of the way of legitimizing it, too, is to kind of connect to Christian allegory. So uh, the search for kind of Christianity as, as being a search for the kind of philosopher's stone, too. There's an inter interesting connection there, too. So my book looks at more of the secular examples, too. But obviously, the there's a lot of uh, religious examples, too. And this kind of comes up, too, in uh, a lot of the Latin um, prose uh, at, the, at the time, too. Um, but yeah, I was kind of interested in this, the secular examples because this links to the kind of exemplar tradition that we see. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of the uh, exemplary poems are more secular in content too. Um, and I think too, the secular content can reach a wider audience too, not just kind of a monthly audience or a cloistered audience. You can have, uh, you know, you can reach people from across the different uh, uh, social classes and so and and orders. Why is Dante Algier canon to alchemical texts, if he is at all? And who else is canon? Uh, so Dante is, uh, you know, he wrote the Divide Comedy. And in Inferno, there's a really interesting uh, canto. I think, I forget the exact canto. But in the canto, um, so we have Dante and Virgil's guiding him through hell. 
and he has he sees the alchemists and you'd think why are these alchemists in hell too and what's interesting is they're compared to uh, uh people who are guilty of fraudulence too and you know sneaky thing about dante he always bases on on real characters so some of these characters are real life there's one character it's quite gruesome actually and he's kind of constantly scratching himself and he has scabs on himself and he's still scratching uh, himself too so alchemy is kind of painted in a bad light in this way um but it's a really interesting depiction too and it's actually pretty far into hell too so i mean to be an alchemist in in dante's eyes was kind of a not a very good thing and we also see as i mentioned in, in jean de moon uh romance romance the rose too um we have uh alchemy as kind of the uh, ape of nature so this is kind of a famous phrase the ape of nature um, it's not the kind of um, genuine rep, uh, replication of nature. So uh, he has a little segment on that too. And then we have Chaucer's tale, as I mentioned, and then John Gower's uh, section on alchemy too. And his section on alchemy com comes under labors and discoverers too. So what's interesting with John Gower is he pictures um, alchemy as kind of a lost art. Um, it's kind of seen as the perfect model for labor but it's kind of a bit of paradoxical because nobody can really attain it because the information needed to uh, attain alchemy has been lost. But he does say that the ancient alchemists, a lot of the Arabic uh, alchemists actually were successful with their art. Obviously that's not true, um, but um, those are kind of some of the the, 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 the big names with, with alchemy at the time. Also um, in Piers Plowman, Langland writes about alchemy too. So he has a little section devoted to alchemy too, but it's quite a, it's in one of the, it's in the B text, I think, the A text or the B text. And uh, he doesn't really write favorably about alchemy too. <laughs> so um, a lot of these authors too, uh, you know, not always um, great views, but I wanted to kind of go beyond the kind of canon a little bit as well too and look at some of the anonymous stuff because a lot of times, you know, there were people who believed alchemy that could work and they did at this time too for a lot of them. And the, the, the anonymous texts show that, um, you know, they believe that alchemy could indeed work or it indeed had some kind of val validation for, for life skills. You know, you could be a better person or you could, uh, you know, um, teach your child these values to the, the, val the values of Christ too. So even if alchemy doesn't work, you still have, you know, these Christian values or whatever the case may be. <laughs> what medieval writers were part of the band book club? The band book club. Um, I don't know if there was like a band book club as such, but I think a lot of them were kind of, uh, you know, looked down upon too. This really happened a lot of times too. They didn't really have the the, Inqu the Inquisition as much with alchemy at this time too, but it was uh, banned. Um, I don't know if there was a band book club so much. I think there was just more of the uh, decretals that were being in, in in put in place too. So in the 13th, or the 13th century, I think it was 13th century, you had uh, Pope John II's decretal against alchemy. And then you had uh, Henry IV also had a decretal against alchemy. And then I think Henry V also had a decretal against alchemy too. Um, so none of the books were really banned. Um, I think also it's important to keep in mind that some of these uh, authors such as Chaucer, they, they kind of had a less than favorable view on alchemy too. So I think that would kind of save them from the banned book club to um, there was one author that I did write about, John of Rupasissa. He was really interesting, and he said that uh, he um, alchemy was uh, the world. Was, he was convinced that the world was going to end, <laughs> and then alchemy was going to re redeem humankind. And they threw him in jail a couple times. So I think he'd probably be a good candidate for the banned book club. <laughs> and he writes about uh, the uh, 
fifth element, so the quintessence. Um, this is important in Aristotelian thought too, and this also kind of trickles into the the early modern period too. But I think John would probably be on the, the band book club for, for sure. <laughs> what archives did you do most of your research in, and were you reading in the original Latin in some cases? Yeah, so my book has uh, sections in Latin, and it also has sections in uh, Old French and some in Italian too. So I had to kind of really navigate with the languages and then also Middle English too. And Middle English can be a challenge even if you're a native speaker too. Um, so thankfully, I was based at Durham University in Northern England, and Durham University has a great amount of resources, but unfortunately, they don't have that many medieval tech or alchemical alchemical texts in the library too. So I did do a research trip to uh, Cambridge University, with the Wren Library at Trinity College. Wonderful like uh, experience too. And I was looking at uh, the uh, the t- the text concerning uh, Albertus Magnus and the Queen of Elves. And then I also went to the British Library, and this is where they have um, Elias Ashmole's original Theatrum Chemicum Britannicum and the uh, the edition of Trill of the Bird that I was looking at. So the British Library had a lot of good resources for that too, and they also have uh, the uh, the Sloan collection too. A lot of the uh, thankfully, um, I mean, this is it's been a while since I was working on my PhD, but. Um, Thankfully, nowadays, a lot of the um, alchemical manuscripts have been digitized, too. There's a lot of catalogs available online, too. Um, and so those were quite quite useful for my purposes as well. What made John Gower's Confessio Amantis so influential? John Gower's Confessio Amantis was really uh, influential. So at, in its time, it was kind of... Uh, it's kind of a story. It's it's kind of a story within a story too, because you have this kind of mourning lover, and he turns to uh, Amans, the confessor, and he uh, the confessor teaches him about all the different types of uh, uh, teaches him about love and kind of sins in all their different forms too. So this is really helpful for the exemplary tradition too. Um, he's he's kind of the scene as a contemporary of Ch- of Chaucer. He doesn't always get the same accolades as Chaucer because uh, when we go into the Renaissance period and then the Victorian period. A lot of people, you know, there was the Reformation and the uh, the Luther, Luther and everything, the Protestantism, um, and you know, a lot of his stuff was seen as kind of moldy Catholic tales, uh, which is too bad because actually there's a lot of meaning in there too. And he, what what uh, what's interesting with Gower is he's taking a lot of classical stories, so Jason the Golden Fleece, uh, you know, Medusa, and he he fits them within that framework of of sin. Uh, to kind of use them as examples of, you know, don't do this and don't do this, uh, how to be the perfect lover too. So it's really, it's a really beautiful collection of stories too. Sometimes he has his own versions of it too. Um, Elias Ashmole uh, thought he had an alchemical version of Jason the Golden Fleece, which isn't true. Um, the alchemical section is actually interesting too, because some people argue that it's it's not a true exemplar because it's uh, it's not its own narrative, but it's technically a narrative within a narrative. Um, so... I, I, I argue that it is, in fact, uh, uh, its own narrative. Are literary researchers entering a new paradigm, so to speak? Are, are they reading the same text in the same ways as they have been? Um, I think there's a lot more interest these days in uh, the relationship between literature and science, too. I think people are realizing that, you know, the value of kind of interdisciplinarity, too. The project that I'm part of right now, too, I work with computer scientists and um and linguists and computational linguists and uh, and all kinds of different education sector too. Um, so I think you know that I think they're starting to see new approaches to literature too, to kind of go beyond their kind of comfort zone too. 
obviously it's quite hard for you know literary scholars to kind of gather empirical data too that's one thing i'm struggling with too but i think you know there's there's a there's a symbiosis between them too i think uh, literary scholars can show, you know, scientists have these all these amazing stories to tell, but sometimes when they're writing to or trying to express ideas, they it's hard for them to kind of convey them successfully. So we can show, literary scholars can show scientists how to do science better too. And I think uh, scientists can show literary scholars the actual science too. So that's something I'm really interested in with this text too, that kind of symbiosis between those. And what about playwrights? Does Shakespeare count as an alchemical writer? Uh, yes, I would say so. so. Shakespeare comes a bit later. Um, we also have Ben Johnson writing The Alchemist, too. That's a really influential play. And that's kind of really stab in the gut, too. So he makes fun of everything alchemical, too. There's a couple uh, plays in which uh, alchemy appears for Shakespeare. Uh, Julius Caesar and I think Timmons of Athens, but and also some of his uh, sonnets. But they're kind of used more metaphorically, too, and more to indicate transmutation or change than kind of anything too meaningful too. But I think uh, Ben Johnson's The Alchemist is a really important text too. And um, he uh, he kind of just takes a stab at it too. You know, he makes fun of the people practicing alchemy, the art itself too. A lot of his characters in the play all have kind of ridiculous names too. And uh, they're kind of, you know, they have those kind of sketchy alchemists practicing the laboratory, probably inspired by Chaucer's uh, Canon's Yeoman's Tale. Um but yeah, so yeah, there's a lot of kind of exciting things happening in, with, with plays. We also have uh, Robert Greene's play the, uh, about Friar Bungay and, um, and Friar Bacon too. And this is based on the kind of uh, medieval alchemy too. And this is a play where they, they make this kind of talking head and <laughs> the talking head uh, actually speaks and then it gets kind of divinely destroyed. Um, yeah. So lots of kind of cool stuff happening in the Renaissance with that too. And again, they're kind of hearkening back to the medieval past. Uh, not always favorably, they kind of make fun of it quite a bit too. But I mean, it just shows that the the the, the ideas of medieval alchemy were still in people's minds too. Um, in the uh, kind of crossover between the medieval and the Renaissance too, you have the Macker poets. These are Scottish poets uh, too, who are also writing about alchemy as well too and they write about it probably not as in, in depth or as in this detail as uh um johnson or or kind of chaucer but i mean it's still worth uh investigating i think and what about giants why do they feature so well in stories like canterbury tales or the sir gowan in the green knight tale giants um well they don't really fit in with alchemy so much it's more about the kind of the idea of the homunculus i suppose um, I haven't encountered too many giants in alchemical writing. Too, um, I think in Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, it's an interesting one because you have this kind of character who comes in and his feast, and he's just so otherworldly. He's just so weird, you know, coming into this court and he's dressed in green. He's this giant man. He cuts off his own head too. Uh, it just shows the kind of subversiveness of of that that kind of world. And I guess basically he's from Wales, you know, so the English have this kind of stigma about Wales at the time. Um, but yeah, giants don't figure into uh, the alchemical text so much, as le at least the ones I have encountered, uh, too. But I, I guess if they do appear, too, they'd probably be some form of allegory, I would think. And what physical features are common in alchemists from your readings? What do they look like and how are they presented? Yeah, 
Uh, that's a great question. So um, Chaucer probably gives the most vivid description of alchemists too. It's not a very favorable uh, <laughs> description of alchemists. So the alchemists that he have he describes, um, they're kind of lead in the face too. So that's not a good sign too, because as we know, with modern science, lead is poisonous. Uh, but they're kind of led in the face for spending so much time in the uh, the lab too, and they stink. They smell like uh, sulfur, <laughs> and they're de dealing with the uh, you know they're de dealing with shit all the time. So they <laughs> the shit explodes and they get covered in it. Um, the uh, the the one that's depicted in the Kanzi Omen's tale is um, quite a caricature, I guess, of alchemy too. Um, and he can't see properly either. He has really bad eyesight from the the furnace. Uh, the furnace is kind of compared to a hell. That's probably the most, the richest description, I guess, we get of alchemists. Obviously, we have alchemists depicted in art a little bit more too. That's more into the Renaissance too. Uh, but obviously, you know, it wasn't always that uh, that bad. That bad to uh, Chaucer's just very kind of uh, uh, subversive as a storyteller. Uh, but if we look at kind of uh, um, other descriptions too, you know, we have people practicing in a lab. Um, but we don't uh, have too many fictional descriptions of, of alchemists at this time. And what do you want readers to look out for in your book, Alchemy and Exemplary Poetry? Anything else that you haven't already mentioned? Yeah, well, I hope it, it benefits uh, people who are interested in kind of learning more about uh, uh, medieval sciences and its connections to literature, too. Um, I think it'll, it'll appeal to kind of not only people who are interested in medieval science, but also kind of contemporary uh readers as well too because i think you know if you're a chemist too and you want to know more about the kind of the roots of, of alchemy too there's there's a lot there to, to to learn from i think for literature students too they can think about ways that we can connect have have dialogues with with science too how we can re reach out to scientists and also how scientists can present their ideas in kind of more efficient narrative ways too so i mean even if alchemy doesn't work i think there's a lot metaphorically to uh to appreciate from kind of these approaches to literature too. Um, and I think it's nice to look just beyond the, the artistic scope too. I think it's nice to approach from a science perspective. Um, I mean, I think there's a lot of exciting things happening right now too, with the history of alchemy and science too. I'm part of the society for the history of alchemy and chemistry. And uh, you know, they're, they're doing all kinds of research too. There's a lot of excavations taking place. So we're still learning a lot about, uh, the history of alchemy too and i mean we'll probably still probably encounter more um um you know stories about that and i one thing i was really excited about with my research is finding all those kind of alchemical recipes and anonymous uh dialogues too because a lot of people they don't know about they know about chaucer they know about gower maybe even john lydgate but they don't probably don't know about you know albertus magnus and the queen of elves and these are kind of some some uh, narratives that I want to draw more attention to, to analyze, you know, and, and hopefully, you know, it'll get more people interested in kind of seeking out those alchemical manuscripts and, and kind of analyzing them, uh, seeing what they mean, uh, how they kind of open the window into kind of uh, 15th century scientific practice or pseudoscientific practice. And uh, just gives us an idea of, of what that kind of, life was like too and maybe we can learn from that you know in modern science and modern narratives too ways of kind of conveying storytelling um and, and etc are you holding any meet and greets or in-person seminars or lectures how can people reach out to you if that's what they want to do uh well i always like hearing from people so um 
I, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm doing any book events or anything yet too, although I, I, I would be keen, um, but I would welcome people to, to email me too, or, or to talk to me on Twitter or uh, Instagram, I, I guess. <laughs> and I'm always happy to talk about my research too, or to talk about alchemy too. Um, I'm really interested in, in early modern alchemy. I'm also interested in the history of chemistry too. Um, I, I come from a more literary background, so I'm not a, I'm not a caveat. I'm not a full scientist, but <laughs> I'm always interested in, in kind of learning new things too. And I have uh, presented on um, um, early modern al alchemy too. So I gave a presentation um, last year in Wales on um, there's a, uh, a Welsh um, alchemist called uh, uh, Thomas Vaughan. And he had a twin brother called Henry Vaughn, who's probably more famous than him. But his wife, Rebecca, was a was an alchemist too, which is really rare in the early modern period. And what is it's even rare is that he actually treated her as his equal. She was his lab partner, assistant, and uh, she was very involved with this process too. And I thought that was really interesting too. So that really made me think about alchemy. So I'm I'm interested in all aspects too. I'm interested in kind of astronomy, astrology too. Obviously, I, I more astronomy than astrology, but in the Middle Ages, uh, uh, they weren't seen as as quite different. They were kind of interchangeable in a lot of ways, um, too. And I'm also interested in kind of uh, you know just just looking at the Middle Ages, you know, rather than as the Middle Ages or the Dark Ages. As kind of, I think as Seb Falk once said, the the Light Ages in his new book. Um, so yeah, I, I welcome kind of any email inquiries too, and you'll probably hear more if there's any kind of book launches or or anything. New Books Network and your host, Nathan Moore, thank Dr. Curtis Runestedler for completing an episode about his book, Alchemy and Exemplary Poetry in Middle English Literature. Stay up to date on all things NBN by subscribing or visiting our website. Thanks so much, man.